This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. I'm Erin Smith, a PhD student from the University of Missouri and a guest host for this episode. Joining me is Katie Ulrich, an assistant professor in the School of Education at Virginia Tech. Our conversation is going to focus on Katie's two-part article called Stages in Constructing and Coordinating Units Additively and Multiplicatively, published in 2015 and 2016 in the journal For the Learning of Mathematics. And leading up to those articles, I first want to ask you, where did you do your graduate studies and with whom did you work with there? I got my PhD from the University of Georgia in 2012 and I worked with Les Duffy. So what got you interested in the topic of constructing and coordinating units? So I was involved in a pilot study that Les Duffy was doing with two and sometimes three other graduate students. In it, we were just looking at, at, well, it wasn't really a pilot study, it was an exploratory study at the time, although it didn't end up being my pilot study for my dissertation. We were really exploring how middle school students developed a bunch of different constructs. So he definitely looked at fractions, which is something he had already laid out pretty well. And then he was looking at combinatorial reasoning. He was looking at ideas of scaling up or scaling down, like um, ratio reasoning. And I wanted to throw in some integer addition and subtraction problems, which we did just for fun. And it turned out that one of the pairs had a horrible time with it, and that was very intriguing to me. Why, why would it be so hard to learn how to add and subtract integers and make sense of that? That got me interested in the idea of if we say you'd be always talking about multiplicative or less stuff, he was always talking about multiplicative coordinations. Unit coordination always meant multiplicative unit coordinations. And I got interested in, well, what if students are making additive comparisons? How does that compare to making a multiplicative comparison? And that was sort of what I was looking into in my dissertation. So in trying to work out some of those questions, I got, I got interested in the idea of just what are units and what does it mean to construct them and coordinate them? The other conversation that was really pivotal is I was talking to Pat Thompson at some point, and he was mentioning that he's starting to think that maybe it isn't multiplicative comparisons or multiplicative coordinations in general that are what makes something much harder for a student. So it's not that you're just adding another level, like another level that's multiplicatively related to the previous levels, but he thinks maybe it's just any quantitative relationship. So whenever you're having to keep track of multiple quantitative relationships, that is going to be hard. So if you're keeping track of two multiplicative uh, relationships, that's going to be easier than keeping track of three. And so that has really informed uh, my later work and the end part of the FLM article, the second FLM article, because that's really what I was thinking about, just limiting myself to mul- multiplicative and additive relationships. But, you know, it turns out that, yeah, three is going to be harder than two. <laughs> but I think maybe what's surprising is that three levels of additive comparisons is harder than two levels of multiplicative comparisons. Mm-hmm. So that was something I wasn't necessarily uh, expecting to happen. So the article articles came out in a two-part. Yes. Did you always envision them as two parts, or was it always one article in your mind that you chose to split? It was one article Mm -hmm. in my mind, but it got too long (laughs) (laughs) because FLM has a pretty strict 
word limit, which I'm not 5,000. I'm not really sure off the top of my head. But clearly what I had was way too long for that. And there wasn't really, I didn't feel like there was a way to cut the article in half, you know, without seriously changing the integrity of it. Um, And I really wanted to lay all of these out together because I, you know, we already have articles just on how they construct one level. And we have articles on like two through three. So I really wanted something that put those all together and talked about them at once. So I just wrote the whole thing out and a couple of people, a couple of my colleagues read it and someone said, I know it's way too long for FLM, but it just seems like the right voice, you know, Mm -hmm. for FLM because it was a little more conversational. So even though it was too long, I sent it in and they were the ones that suggested it just be split up. So in your articles, you present a framework that draws on a lot of research as well as your own thinking about students learning. How did this synthesis work come about? And was it always going to end up in the form that we see it in the articles? Or was there a different goal or a different format that you had in mind originally? So originally, I was trying to write up a conceptual framework (laughs) to explain how I was thinking about levels of units. There were several researchers at the time that were using, especially just in conversation, were using the terms levels of units or or, um, like a two-level structure, a three-level structure. But when... I started looking around, I couldn't find too many places where some of those terms were really laid out. Um, Mm -hmm. Amy Hackenberg had written about multiplicative concepts to sort of, I think, have an easier way of speaking about it. But she is really focusing on multiplicative comparisons like pretty explicitly. So I still was trying to figure out like, what are units and what Mm -hmm. is a level of units and what does it mean to coordinate levels of units? And when I started trying to write it up, I basically realized that I had to first figure out what one level of units was. And um, that took me back to early work, in particular, von Glossersfeld's JRME article uh, that talks about the construction of units. And Piaget also wrote about the construction of arithmetic units. So just as part of my conceptual framework, I tried to tie that all together. But of course, after I had actually carried out the dissertation and thought about it for a couple of years, my understanding of the difference between an additive and multiplicative comparison and how that would play into it definitely deepened my understanding. So at that point, I wanted to get that out there for people to read more broadly. I also just have found it very useful in understanding the constraints that various learning researchers talk about in their articles. So they might not be talking about how many levels of units a student is working with, but when I was going through, I could sort of interpret their findings through that lens and I found that useful to bring a lot of things together so that was another reason I thought it could be useful for the broader community. The idea for your article originally came out of your work for your dissertation is that correct? Yeah and actually not even it was before we had I had done uh, collected my data it was just when I was trying to set out the conceptual framework I was using. So since the time when you were working on your dissertation to to now how has your thinking about this topic changed and evolved as you wrote this out and have sent it out for publication? I think the main thing is that I was conflating composite units with two levels of units for a while. And I think that constructing a composite unit is a little bit different than constructing a new level of units. And I don't think I fully appreciated that when I was first doing my research. The other thing is I hadn't until I did my dissertation research and sort of analyzed the data, I didn't have uh, an appreciation for how difficult additive comparisons Mm -hmm. would be. And so the idea of what would be involved in 
coordinating two different number sequences that are at the same level of units, you know, that that's fairly hard for students to do. And I think I underestimated that. So I, th I think that even though I had this conceptual framework written out, I didn't have a good intuitive sense for how that actually played out in students' ability to carry out different types of problems. It wasn't until I did some follow-up research and specifically looked at the question of how does the difficulty of making additive comparisons or multiplicative comparisons compare that I found out that as hypothesized, additive comparisons would be easier to make. However, what I didn't anticipate was that for many students, additive comparisons, if they don't have practice in working with additive comparisons, the so differences basically, if they don't have practice with that, it can be quite difficult for them to work with additive comparisons. And so that definitely informed the end of the article where I'm trying to make links between additive and multiplicative thinking. So before we go through the four stages of the framework, can you help us uh, get on the same page about what a unit really is? I can try. <laughs> um, so, you know, you could call lots of things units. Uh, we talk about, when students start counting, Steffi talks about countable units, um, countable unit items. So even when a student still needs objects in front of them to count, we will still sometimes talk, you know, use the term unit. However, when we're using the term unit in talking about levels of units or coordinating units, we generally mean an arithmetic unit. And so we mean something, it's, been an, it's an interiorized act of counting. And the way I like to think about it is that until the student really thinks about number as a quality of a set that can be measured, in uh, the units of counting by one, um, until they have that concept of number, they don't really have a unit because there's nothing they're measuring. So when you see those younger students who are able to count but don't think of the final number as representing a quality of the set, what does it mean to call it a unit? They're not measuring anything. Um, so that's the way I like to think about it, is sort of to uh, connect it back to measurement. The other thing I can say is that I'm definitely building, as I said earlier, but I'm definitely building off the work of Piaget and von Glossersfeld and sort of theorizing and documenting how students develop units, interiorized units. So can you tell us about the first stage of your framework? Okay, so the first stage um, of the framework is basically the first stage at which we would say students are numerical, and that's going right back to what we were just talking about. So. In the first stage, that's the first time that number is really something students see as a quality of the world. Like we think of just, we see the world in terms of color. Well, they see the world in terms of number. They, they develop that ability at this point. Um, so at that point is the first time they really have units and one level of units, the way that uh, we talk about it with middle school students. And some of the things that allows them to do would be to count on. So for teachers of young children, they'll recognize that that's a big step is when students can learn to count on instead of count all. Um, and for those of you that do secondary research, that means that uh, if you give a student eight marbles and then you give them another five marbles and ask them how many there are all together, they don't have to recount those first eight. They can just say eight and that will stand in for having counted the eight. And then they'll continue 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 as they count the other five marbles. So that's something that they're not able to do until that first stage of the framework. The other thing we talk about at that stage is that they have numerical composites, which means that they can experientially bound counting activity and count 
it. They're, they're like aware of monitoring their own counting activity to some extent. However, if they're thinking about, like they might know that counting 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 was five because they kept track of it on their hand or something like that. However, they're not really focusing on the five as one thing. They're still focusing in on each individual act of counting. So it's like if you think about foregrounding the forest or the trees, they're foregrounding the trees still at this point, which changes at the next stage. So those are probably the main characteristics of that first stage. Okay. So taking us into the second stage then, can you say a bit about that? Yeah. So the big thing in the second stage are composite units. So... In the second stage, the students can construct composite units, and with younger students, that might sort of be the extent of it, but my work has mainly been with sixth grade students who obviously have been counting for a long time, and so by that time, they're really good at using their tool of composite units, and they've started using it in an anticipatory way, maybe even in what we would call an assimilatory way. In other words, I know they can anticipate the results of counting by composite units. So those would be numbers larger than one, so they could count by fives um, and anticipate the results of doing that activity. But I think it's possible that they even assimilate um, situations in terms of those composite units. For example, we gave out some problems where there were bars, and we said the first bar equals five. And then the second bar was made up of partitions that were the same size as the first bar. So it was like you know, four iterations of the first bar. A student who can construct a composite unit, if we told them, like in the interview, if I were to say, well, what does it mean when I said that was five? And then they were to say, oh, well, maybe that means there's five things in there, and they were to draw that out, then they could complete the problem. They had to construct that composite unit before they could finish up the problem. But for students that have been working with the TNS for a long time, they already are aware of the fact that when they see the five, that that means that there are five things represented by the bar. And so they can go ahead and form copies of that five and count five four times to get 20. So that's something that my research sort of adds to some of the writings that Steffi has done in the past because he was working with younger students for whom that second stage was pretty transitional. They would go through it pretty quickly. And I was working with students who had been stuck in that stage for I don't know how long, but if they were in sixth grade and they were still at that second stage, probably they had been stuck there for a long time. But regardless, everyone at the second stage can construct composite units. With younger students, a big change that you might see is that if you were asking them to find the difference between two numbers, like how many more would I add to nine to get to 17 or something, they would understand that there is some amount between 9 and 17 that is a composite unit and that they could count it, and then they'll count off the subsequence from 10 to 17. At the first stage, students wouldn't spontaneously develop the ability to do that. You'd have to teach them mm-hmm. that that was the strategy to use. But by the time you get to sixth grade, um, everyone has already been taught how to do a lot of these things. So the big thing you'll see at sixth grade is that they are able to actually count by composite units, which basically is to make a multiplicative comparison. They can say there are five fours and 20, or they can say that there are three sevens and 21, and figure that out by either skip counting or repeated addition or something like that, and keep track of counting by composite units. So at that, that's why I would say that at that point, they have constructed two levels of units because they have their units of one. Mm-hmm. We know they can count by that. Mm-hmm. 
and then they have their composite unit and they can also count by that composite unit and measure off another number by that. So they can say, oh, there were seven threes in 21. But with younger students, like when Steffi was working with K through two students, he did not see them usually able to do that unless it was a really small number, like a two or a three or something. So that was something that develops over time and is probably more indicative of the third stage. Nonetheless, that would be an example of where at first I thought composite units, developing a composite unit meant you had two levels of units. But if you can't actually measure off another mem- number by that composite unit, what does it mean to say it's a unit? You know, it's, it's sort of, it gets a little bit complicated in, in that second stage. Um, the only other thing I'd say for the second stage is even though students don't understand fractions in a way that's at all similar to how you or I would, the advanced students can use their composite units as a partitioning template. So they become pretty, they can sometimes become pretty good at simultaneously partitioning continuous units into Mm -hmm. fractional parts. So if you said to share this bar among five people, they could kind of picture the five and then like Mm -hmm. mentally move it around to figure out approximately where to put the partition lines. Um, And that's something that until that stage, you really don't see students do that. They just can sort of equisegment before that stage. So for our listeners, I'm speaking with Katie Ulrich from Virginia Tech about her articles in the journal for the learning of mathematics. Um, So to continue, can you tell us a bit about the third stage of your framework? Yeah, so the third stage, you definitely can understand situations in terms of two levels of units. So not only can you construct composite units, but definitely at this point, you can think about other numbers is made up of multiple copies of some other number. Like you definitely know that 21 can be divided into smaller factors like threes or sevens. So that's one really big change. You also, because that has become fairly clear to you at this point, you start to see students develop three levels of units or three level structures, some people will call them. And so that would be when I, I keep saying that a student at the second stage could tell you that there are seven threes in 21, but they really are thinking about the act of counting by threes seven times. So they're really thinking about those counting acts. Mm-hmm. When you get to the third stage, mm-hmm. the student can actually think about 21 as mm-hmm. made up of seven threes or three sevens. Mm-hmm. So they've reconceptualized their composite units to contain, they can after they constructed an activity, they can reconceptualize that containing larger unit like 21 as made up of the smaller ones and as being in sort of a multiplicative relationship with the smaller ones. But that is something they have to sort of work out in activity. What that allows them to do, the big, big change you'll see here is that students become fractional in the sense that they really can understand multiplicative relationships now. The previous stage, they could maybe come up with the answer you would want to a multiplicative question, but they don't really understand the relationship as multiplicative. They think of like repeated counting or addition. Mm -hmm. But at the third stage, they actually think about things multiplicatively. So even like the number eight, instead of just thinking about, oh, eight means I've counted eight times. So I've counted eight members of the number sequence and gotten to eight, Mm -hmm. which is more what a second stage student would think. At the third stage, the student would say like, oh, eight would mean that I can take one of my counting acts and just do that eight times. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking about eight times as big as one. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a whole new way of thinking about numbers. 
And one thing that allows is for, so like if we think about fractions, just even understanding fractional language, like four sevenths, you have to understand that the seven is representing a multiplicative relationship between the fractional whole and the fractional piece. So if I take that fractional piece of one seventh and iterate it seven times, I get the whole. And students just really can't do that until the third stage. So that's what we would call them fractional at that point. Uh, another thing I talk about in the article is the ability for students to disembed reversibly. And usually people just say disembed and they mean reversibly disembed. But that would mean they could take out some, you know, maybe the difference between 12 and 19. They could take it out and operate on it. Maybe they change 19 to 20 mm -hmm. and figure that out. And they know that's 8. But then they can go back, put it back in the original sequence and say, oh, but I need to decrease 20 to 19. So they can do a lot of strategic reasoning with addition and subtraction. And with fractions as well, there's sort of the sense that, I mean, whenever you're making a multiplicative comparison, you have to be able to think of the two quantities as separate from each other and then think about measuring one of the quantities off by the other. Whereas before the students really, they were always operating within a larger number. So now can you tell us about uh, the fourth stage, the final stage? Yeah, so in the fourth stage, this is uh, sort of the pinnacle. This is when students can coordinate, well, we say they can coordinate three levels of units, but basically it means that they can like keep recursively doing this process. And so, you know, you can unpack sort of anything at this point. You can unpack, uh, you know, 10,000 and unpack mm -hmm. that into thousands and hundreds and ten, you know tens and ones and all of that kind of thing so you can understand um, multiple different multiplicative comparisons but importantly you can consider more than one of those multiplicative comparisons at a time so you can actually consider two at a time and what that means is that for a student at that stage they could conceive of four sevenths for example as four times as big as one seventh which is seven times smaller than one and they they have that all like all of those implications are in their head at once. So that would be true for you and I. Mm -hmm. And for number fractions less than one, it turns out that that's not such a big deal to be able to keep track of both at once. But for improper fractions, mm -hmm. you know, research has kind of shown that that's a serious constraint. If students can't understand um, like nine fourths is nine times as big as one fourth, which is four times smaller than the fractional whole. If they can't understand the nine and the fours representing multiplicative relationships, it becomes hard to, to really operate or even understand what's going on in nine fourths. I mean, it, before that, they understand, so like at the third stage when they're thinking about a fraction like four sevenths, mm -hmm. The seven represents a multiplicative relationship, but the four is more just like you have four of those sevenths, more like a counting kind of thing. You have four of these sevenths. Whereas at the next stage, if they're thinking about four sevenths, it's four times as big as one seventh. So then it makes sense to say you have nine sevenths, because clearly you can just iterate sevenths nine times. Before that, it wouldn't make a lot of sense because you're still at the third stage, they're still thinking about just that multiplicative relationship between the piece and the whole. Mm -hmm. And so let's say that that multiplicative relationship is seven for sevenths. Mm -hmm. So if they're thinking about four sevenths, then they're counting four of those seven mm -hmm. pieces. And if you try to tell them like nine sevenths, then they're like, mm, no, there's only seven pieces. You know, you don't have two more that you can magically grab. Um, so at the fourth stage is really when they can work with improper fractions. And 
the big implication for middle school is that's when they can conceptually understand a lot of the things that we expect all students to do at middle school. Um, so a lot of the operations on rational numbers, I mean, especially if you're going to throw in proper fractions in, you need to be able to understand proper fractions in that way to make sense of what's going on with the algorithms. And, you know, I would say that we know most students aren't there by like sixth grade. So that means that a lot of students are just kind of memorizing these algorithms mm -hmm. before before then. It also gives them a good place to start from when they're getting to algebraic reasoning in an algebra class because in algebra a lot of times you're asked to think about a multiplicative relationship between an unknown and some other number and that can be um, hard for students to do until they have that ability to think about multiple multiplicative relationships at once. So if you said four sevenths times x equals three, I mean that just it just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to a student um, mm -hmm. until they get to that that fourth stage. Um, so we think of the fourth stage as being the final stage, not in that once they've constructed the operations underlying the fourth stage, they're done, but more just that they have learned to deal with high levels of mathematical complexity at once, and we think they can continue to reorganize their different mathematical conceptions to deal with sort of any level of complexity thrown at them at least for the rest of secondary mathematics. Mm -hmm. So the fourth stage is sort of sufficient. Um, some people say that they think that people only, like we only, the most we can coordinate once is three levels of units. Mm -hmm. Sort of the same way that I think Kostrol said that we can't picture more than 12 items really mm -hmm. at once in our mind. And for some people it would be less than that. But I have wondered sometimes when I work with mathematicians, you know, that are really dealing with super abstract structures if in order to do that they don't need to if there isn't some other stage that we don't even bother studying with middle school <laughs> students you know so that's sort of an open question how do you hope to see this framework being used in research and in practice so for research like i said i, I find it really useful for bringing together a lot of the research that is being done on student learning in the middle grades in particular um, I'm sure it would be useful with the elementary research as well, but since my research is in the middle grades, that's what I've been attending to. Because lots of researchers find constraints they come up against when they're trying to do some kind of an intervention, or they'll note that one type of problem seems to be much harder for students than another type of problem. And a lot of times when I'm reading through those, I can understand that in terms of this framework, and it makes sense to me, and I can kind of drop it in and say, oh, that helps me understand like why this difficulty would be there and also whether I think it's teachable or not. In other words, if you have a student who's at the third stage and you need them to do a problem where they're considering two multiplicative relationships simultaneously, that just might not be within their zone of potential development or construction, at least not without figurative material or some, some, some kind of support available. So that gets into the implications for practice, but basically as a teacher, I feel like if teachers can generally understand some of these stages, and you know, at any given grade level, you probably, like, it's not as important to understand the first stage when you're teaching sixth grade. You will have some of them, but you're dealing with so much complexity by sixth grade mathematics that basically you're gonna have to scaffold the first and second stage quite a bit, so you can kind of treat them, you know, similarly. But whichever grade you're teaching, there's going to probably be two or three stages you really need to sort of understand and understand the types of constraints and affordances the students will have at those stages. And that will help you understand whether you should keep students to like metacognitively reflect on a problem or whether you really just need to, to allow them to draw part of it or show them 
ways they can use manipulatives or diagrams or something to scaffold their thinking because you'll understand, oh, they can't keep track of that much complexity in their head, so I need to help them break it down, you know? Whereas you don't want to do that with a student at the fourth stage because they're ready to sort of blossom. You know, mm-hmm. you want them, they, they're more mathematically powerful than that. So you want to push them to not write things down or to maybe even do an extension where they're using an even harder quantity to reason with. So I feel like it can be used to help teachers differentiate their instruction quite a bit. Um, that's something, even when I'm working with the elementary pre-service teachers, sometimes we'll talk a little bit about that. Like, well, what would you do if you had a student who you thought had a part-whole conception and wasn't able to develop partitive conceptions? In other words, what if you had a student who was at one of the first two stages, mm-hmm. but you have to do fractions, <laughs> like actual <laughs> fraction problems? Um, so we talk about ways you can scaffold that complexity for them. Um, so where do you see your research going next after this work that you've done with the framework? What I would like to do is to get a handle on what the approximate percentages are for students at these different stages. And I'm obviously interested in sixth grade because that's who I usually work with, but certainly other grades as well would be interesting. And so right now I'm trying to develop a written assessment that would approximate the analysis I could do in a clinical interview of where a student is as far as their stage. and then do it, scale it up so that I can look at multiple classrooms. Um, So I'm on the second iteration of that right now with one of my colleagues, Jay Wilkins. And that's been really interesting. And I think, you know, once we have that data, then that can help inform uh, instructional recommendations or policy recommendations and that sort of thing. But at the moment, until we really have the data to say, you know, most students at sixth grade are not fractional, and yet you're having them do a bunch Mm -hmm. of operations on rational numbers, you know, unless we can really say that that's true, our recommendations don't hold as much weight um, with instructors. So, and then the other thing is figuring out, um, well, I guess there's a couple things. One is figuring out what are the instructional implications of some of this. I mean, I'm just starting to think about that now. Uh, so especially with some of the topics that are in, uh, in the middle grade, some of the mathematical topics there, what are the implications? In my dissertation, I teased out some of it for integers, but it was just integer addition and subtraction. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, multiplication and division mm-hmm. still out there. Mm-hmm. Amy Hackenberg and others have done some work going toward how do some of these ideas link to algebraic reasoning, but there's mm-hmm. obviously still work to be done there. So definitely just thinking about what implications does this framework have for various mathematical contexts and then how you would need to support students in the different stages when they're in these different contexts is a big thing. And I would also be interested in going back, I mean, this is this will be a decade, two, decade, <laughs> two decades down, but I would definitely be interested at some point in going back and looking at some of the um, contexts in the elementary grades that haven't been explicitly linked to this. So some of the geometric concepts, uh, you know, understanding angle or something mm-hmm. like, so, you know, Kevin Morda's work on angle measure. Well, how does that all relate to what we're talking about here. How does angle as a quantity compared to dealing with, you know, counting as a quantity or, or fraction as a quantity? And also statistics and probability is another place. We don't really understand exactly what it means to have a statistical variable, so to speak, you know, like we're not sure how that relates to all of these different stages. What does that mean a student can do as far as understanding probability as a quantity? 
So there's lots of work that could be done, and I think it's just going to be, you know, I like working with other people. So mm-hmm. right now I'm working with someone who does quantitative research and has done written <laughs> instruments before. So I was like, hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that. You know, so I think there's a lot of directions to go, and it's going to depend on, you know, what are my colleagues' sort of interests and who, do, who can I work well with and develop a good working relationship with. So we have one final question. If you were not working in mathematics education as a career, what can you imagine yourself doing instead? So, Erin <laughs> and I were talking about this question <laughs> before the podcast started, um, and we both were thinking about what are the what do we do? What do we do in our time outside of the job, and what, what are sort of our interests and you know, some of those do not translate well into careers. Like, I don't think I'd really become a professional dog walker, but obviously <laughs> I spend a lot of time walking dogs. I have two dogs. But um, I think probably it would be, if I were going to go back and study something else, I think it would probably be religious studies because I've always done a ton of reading on different religions. And I'll look at, you know, the different hermeneutical techniques that religious scholars use. And I'm just really interested in the sort of academic side of that. So I think that that might be, if I had to go back and, you know, the mathematics education world exploded or something, and I had to go back (laughs) and tell Katie, you know, 20 years ago what to do, (laughs) maybe that would be the best thing. Do you think you would still go into academia? Or would you take that in a different direction? I know. So yeah, I guess I would take, I probably would stay in academia for that. And so knowing what I know now, (laughs) maybe... Um, maybe I would walk dogs. Maybe. (laughs) Thank goodness there's math education. Let's just say that. (laughs) Well, Katie, thank you for taking the time to speak with us about your work. This is Erin Smith for the Math Up Podcast. Sam will be back for the next episode. Mm